Well, if you've got a Bible there, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 10, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of, of Mark, and we are up to uh, Mark chapter 10. Our text this morning will be Mark 10, verses 35 to 45, and if you're able to, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Give ear to the Word of the Lord. Mark 10, verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and, or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called, to, to him, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you would, must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's uh, pray and ask God to teach us his word that we might have understanding this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospels. Thank you for what they, each one has to tell us about you, about how you have sent your Son to be the salvation of sinners, even of us. And we ask that you would help us in our weakness, that you would uh, work in us by your Holy Spirit, and that you would, uh, by, by his work in us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were, in case you weren't here last week, last week we looked at a, a very short passage from, from the very the three verses before this, verses 32 to 34, and there we saw that for the, the third time in a span of just three chapters, you see Jesus telling his disciples in very clear, uh, you know, clear and plain language what was about to happen to him when they got to Jerusalem. They were, they were on their way to Jerusalem, and he basically tells them, you know, when we get to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen. They're, gonna, they're going to, his own people were going to reject him. He said that they were going to, uh, he was going to suffer. They were going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, and, and even kill him. Um, he says that in very clear, clear details. And then he says, thankfully, that after three days he was going to rise. So he says this all, he's not talking in parables. He's not talking in, in unclear language where they would be easy to misunderstand or think he's talking about something else. Well, right after talking about, really talking about his cross, he doesn't mention the cross that we know of, you know, strictly speaking by name, but everything he said would lead to that conclusion. You know, when, when he talks about flogging, flogging was a very specific uh, form of, of beating that, that who, when he's handed over to the Gentiles to be flogged and killed, who, who did they know he was talking about? The Romans. 
How did the Romans kill people that were condemned to death? By crucifixion. He didn't have to say the word for them to know exactly what he was talking about. So he just told them in so many words, I'm going to go get crucified by the Roman government. And you're going to be with me. And what's the very next thing that they seem to think of or say is what we find in our, in our text. It's, it's a very, to say the least, it's an ill-fitting response. You know, if, if for someone who had understood what he said, you, this is the last thing you'd expect someone to be saying. Although, if you remember the previous chapter in chapter 9, they did the same thing then. They had dreams of their own, their own prominence and glory. In verses 35 to 37, this is essentially, at least James and John's, response to the message of the cross. This is what it says. And James and John, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, to Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, same kind of address that the rich young ruler made to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, they, if you have kids, well, everybody's been a kid at one point. You may have asked something just like this to your parents when you were little. Kids, have you ever asked your parents have you, or someone, have you ever said, I want, I want you to do something for me. I want you to promise me that you'll give me what I ask without telling them what you're asking? Have you ever done that? Why, why did you, if you ever done, I've done that, why do you do that? Because you don't think that what you're asking might be on the up and up. Or you don't really think they're going to do what you ask. You know, it's like if you remember the Christmas story, not the one in the Bible, but the movie, the kid's trying to trick his dad into getting him the Red Ryder pump-action BB gun. Because he knows his dad's going to say no. That's, that's what we do. We, we sometimes kind of beat around the bush and try to manipulate the answer. That's kind of what the disciples do here. It's almost as if they know somehow in the back of their heads that what they're asking might be out of line. And so they say, hey, Jesus, we have a favor to ask kind of thing. And he asks them what, what it is. But they ask about glory. They want to sit one on the right hand and one on the left of, his, of him in his, in his glory. Now, again, why did the disciples ask that way? Why did they kind of beat around the bush and ask ahead of time? They, they must have known this wasn't quite, wasn't quite right. And maybe, remember with the, the disciples, the other ten, what was their reaction when they heard? They were... It says indignant. They were angry. Uh, now, you've got to think they probably understood that they were trying to cut in line. They knew when they asked, they were kind of cutting in line and cutting the other ten out of the special spots at the right hand and at the left of the king of glory when he entered into his glory. Now, it's easy to get be kind of hard on the disciples, especially Peter, but in this one case in the book of Mark, uh, James and John uh, finally get to stand out for the wrong reason as well. It's easy to be kind of hard on them, but their, their request isn't entirely without merit, is it? I don't mean merit for them, but I mean, it's not exactly a bad request. It's not really uh, something that, that in, is wrong in every respect. It, it certainly revealed their lack of understanding. It revealed they weren't maybe paying attention to what Jesus said about his own crucifixion that was to come when they got to Jerusalem, which was coming up. But think about it this way. It also took a good measure of faith, didn't it? I mean, Jesus just talked about his crucifixion, and they still believe, they really do believe, that he's going to enter into his glory. They really believe that he was the Christ. No matter what he said about the cross and their misunderstandings about it, they, they did not waver in their faith that he really was the Messiah, that he really is 
the king of the Jews. And so they believed as the king of the Jews, as the Messiah, that he was, even if they didn't quite understand how it was going to happen, he really was going to enter into his glory. And so they asked what they asked, maybe for the wrong reasons and for the, in the wrong way, but it did, it did take a measure of faith to ask what they asked, even if it also took a good measure of, of selfishness and misunderstanding. But they didn't really understand the mission of Christ and how he was going to establish his kingdom, did they? To say the least. They didn't really understand how it, what it would take for him to get to enter into his glory. They didn't understand no matter how many times, at least three times, that he taught them in these previous chapters that he had to suffer many things and then he had to die and that he had to rise after three days. No matter how many times he seemed to tell them, they didn't quite seem to grasp the message Luke in the parallel passage in Luke 18 verse 34. Luke just spells it right out for us. He says, after Jesus talking about his cross and resurrection, it says, but they understood none of these things. They, it, he was talking to the wall. They didn't get a single thing he was talking about. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. It's like Jesus talks about his cross three times, and in that span of that one verse, Luke tells us three different ways they didn't get it. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They just didn't get it. Maybe they had selective hearing. You ever know somebody that's had selective hearing? Maybe you've had selective hearing. You know, somebody could tell you ten bad things, but they include one phrase that's ambiguous. And so what do you do when that's the case? You hang on to that one thing and forget everything else that was said. You know, they think they're that one that one small thing, they pick and choose whatever details support their hopes and what they really want to have happened. You know, maybe think about it this way. If you're in their shoes and it's easy to, to not to not put yourself in their shoes because you know the end from the beginning of the story because you read the whole Gospels, I'm sure, multiple times, it must have been awfully difficult for them to grasp the concept of Jesus, the Lord of glory, the one they were following, being crucified. You know, maybe they thought, you see the rationale they might think, you know, they, they've heard him talk in parables before and they've had to ask, what does this mean? In this case, they thought, well, it can't mean that, but they never asked. They were afraid, it says in a previous passage, they were afraid to ask him what he was talking about. Maybe they didn't want to seem ignorant or, or foolish, but they didn't, you know, think about it. They don't know how to make the, a crucified Messiah fit with which, what they understood about him and what the scriptures had to say about him. They couldn't imagine the king of the Jews dying a criminal's death. He wasn't just going to get mugged on the side of the road somewhere and left for dead. He was going to be executed by the Roman government. That, that doesn't, you know, it's hard for our little minds to, to kind of fathom and how that works together with Christ entering into his glory as the son of David and the son of man. Well, so Jesus, what he does in our passage this morning, he tells them at least three things uh, that they did not understand. That they didn't understand what they were asking. And why did they not understand what they were asking? Uh, it's in at least three different ways. The first thing they needed to understand uh, was that the true way to share in the glory of Christ involves sharing in his sufferings. That was the first thing they had to understand. The, the way to sharing in Christ's glory uh, involves sharing in Jesus' suffering. So in verse 38, he says this to them. You do not know what you're asking. Understatement. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now that... That probably seems like an odd way to put it. 
uh, to our to our ears. Um, why speak of a cup and of a baptism when he's talking about his sufferings, his death, even the cross itself? Now, the cup, as we've even heard this morning already, the cup is a, a common metaphor and, and picture in Scripture for the wrath of God. It's used all throughout the Scriptures in the Old and New Testament about God's wrath. Jeremiah 25:15, the prophet Jeremiah speaks of the cup of the wine of, of wrath. And whose wrath is he talking about? The wrath of the Lord, of Yahweh. Revelation, the last book in your Bible, Revelation 14.10, speaks of the wine of the Lord's wrath and the cup of his anger. Even our scripture reading that, that Dan did earlier, chapter 51 of Isaiah, there speaks of, in verse 17, Israel, Jerusalem itself, having drunk, quote, from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. Talking about the things, his chastisement upon them, him sending them off into captivity at the hands of their, of their enemies. You might even know in the Gospels, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to get to this not too far from now in Mark chapter 14. What did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? More than once, in the exact same words. And verse 36, he said, Jesus said, praise, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What cup? What cup is he talking about? His sufferings, his death on the cross. God, his Father, pouring out his wrath on Jesus in our place. It weighed heavily on him. He did not undertake it lightly. Now, it's no accident, maybe you've thought of this when we were reading it, it's no accident that the two things that Jesus names in referring to his sufferings and death just happen to be corresponding to the two sacraments that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has instituted for his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He names baptism by name, and the cup is often also a kind of an abbreviated title for the Lord's, for the Lord's Supper. It's in those two sacraments that our catechism says that Christ himself and the benefits of the new covenant are represented or signified, sealed and applied to believers. And it's not, it's not without reason that Jesus picks those two things those two pictures and metaphors to represent his sufferings. Those two sacraments, which are the only two in Scripture that Jesus instituted for his church as our Lord and Master of his church, they signify and seal our union with him and our communion with him. They primarily signify what in that? His death. His death and both those sacraments, the only two we have, both signify his death. Both represent and seal unto us his death for our sins in our place. This is what the Apostle Paul says about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.25. He says that Jesus says the cup, what was the cup? The cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup is the new covenant in Christ's blood. The cup represents or signifies Christ's blood shed for the remission of our sins. Likewise, Paul again in Romans 6 Verses 3 to 4, he says this about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptized into his death. We were buried together with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of Christ's death in our place, and we are united to him by, by our baptism, 
not by the water itself, obviously, but by being baptized into Christ, our union with Christ. We are united by the work of the Holy Spirit through faith into his death and resurrection and all of his benefits. So baptism signifies our union with Christ and his death on our behalf, that we died and were buried with him so that we might live, live now in the power of the resurrection and walk in newness of life. Now, what this means is Jesus clearly saw his sufferings and his death as being a substitutionary atonement, as him dying in the place of his people. That's why our, those sacraments signify our union and communion with him in those things in particular, in his death and resurrection. Now you think about him talking about his baptism and his cup and what that means and how it refers to his death primarily. All of his sufferings are really included, but his death in particular on the cross. It, it should really make more astonishing to us the request that James and John made. Of all the things they could think of when he talks about uh, after talking about his cross and resurrection for them to be having daydreams of, of glory and thinking about that uh, this is why he says to them in verses 39 and 40 the cup that I drink he tells them this you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been Prepared. Now, Jesus is not saying that they were going to somehow share in accomplishing our salvation. He's not saying that even if they died, which, which uh, James actually was killed for his faith, that their death was somehow going to play a part in our redemption. It's nothing like that at all. Their future sufferings for the name of Christ and for his gospel had no atoning value at all. And yet, in some sense, they were going to be sharing in his sufferings for the sake of his name and for the sake of his gospel. That those who follow Christ, then as well as now, in some sense, are called to share in his sufferings. The Bible says that you're called not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his name's sake. You ever think about that? We're called also to suffer as well as to believe. That still holds true today. Bible still says that. The fact of that, of the death and sufferings of these apostles, James and John, is confirmed in Scripture and it's confirmed in church history. The book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Luke writes there, Acts 12, 1 to 2, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on, on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's all it says. Doesn't go into detail, doesn't give us all kinds of, you know, backstory. But he kills one of the apostles. And if you know the story after that, what does it say? When he saw that it pleased the people, anything, you know, give the people what they want, he grabbed Peter too and was going to do the same thing, but God had other plans and rescued him. But so James, James did, in some ways, drink the cup that Christ drank. Not the, not the wrath of God the Father, but he did, he did drink of the cup of suffering and even of martyrdom for the name of Christ. Uh, John, his brother, uh, they tried to kill John, and they ended up putting him in a, on, a, on an island prison on Patmos. You might know in the book of Revelation, where he received that revelation and wrote it, was this island's exile, this prison, prison colony of sorts on an island. Uh, he says this, Revelation 1, verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation or affliction, your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the isle, island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John would find out later that he was going to share in Christ's suffering 
sufferings and be baptized with Christ's baptism. He was going to suffer for the name of Christ, the one who had suffered for him. So the way to glory in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, then as now as well, is still the way, it's, it still involves sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The disciples needed to learn that lesson, and you and I also need to learn that lesson, those of us who believe in Christ in our day as well. Well, the second thing, the first thing was sufferings, sharing in Christ's sufferings. The second thing the disciples needed to understand was that the way to true greatness in the kingdom of Jesus Christ involves serving others. It involves not just suffering, but it involves serving. Verses 41 to 44, Mark says, And when the ten heard it, they heard what the others had requested. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, so now he has them all gathered, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall, not, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Now notice how opposite and how upside down the ways of Christ are compared to the ways of the world in which we live. There couldn't be a more contrary, opposite, bizarro worldview of greatness and authority than what Jesus, at least in the eyes of the world, that, than what Jesus gives to us here. And what he, you know, these words like Jew and Gentile, they don't strike home with us. But when he's, he basically tells them, when he says, that you, this is the way the Gentiles think, he's saying, you're thinking like a heathen. You're thinking like a pagan. You're thinking like someone who doesn't even know the one true and living God. That's how unbelievers, that's how people who practice false religion think of greatness and authority. You've got the whole thing backwards. You act like you don't even know me, the way that you're thinking about greatness and about authority. He says they had a pagan or worldly idea of, of greatness, of glory, of power and authority. When he says that the, the Gentiles thought of it as a matter of, of lording it over, uh, the word or the, the, the prefix there for, for lording it over, it, it's a good way to put it, but it's really against. He's saying they lord it against the people that they are in authority over. Then he says, same thing there, when he says about exercising authority over, it's really exercising authority against. It's, it's the exact opposite of serving. It's, it's not even just self-serving. It's, it's doing harm, using your, your power, your, your position, your glory, and all of that for, to harm others rather than to serve them. That's the world's way of thinking. That's something we see all the time. You know, you think about, you can apply this in all kinds of ways. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but you know, think about, about some of you have, have been and are involved in sales. Sales used to be and still should be involving service. You, know, you have less trouble selling things if you're trying to do something that's good for someone, not trying to sell them something you know they don't need and can't afford. When you sell something, you do a service just for your own ends, just for your own gain, you've got it backwards. Politics, how, you know, it used to be public service, not a means to an end, not a means of, of selfish gain and glory. What if politicians, and some still do, I'm sure, what if they entered that arena of politics to do good to their neighbor, to serve rather than to gain? That's what Christ would have them 
to do. The world seeks power and position for selfish gain. And Christ says to us, it shall not be so among you. The world sees greatness and authority as being primarily for the benefit of the one who holds the position of power and glory and authority. And that mindset even inflicts itself upon the church. It infects us in the church at times as well. How often are we in the church, whether leadership or not, guilty of such worldly thinking? Do we seek positions of authority or influence in the church? There's nothing wrong with that. What does Paul say about, about, about someone who wants to be an elder or an overseer? If he, a man who desires that desires a noble task. It's a good thing. You should aspire to it. If you're a young boy, you should think about someday, maybe God will let me be an elder. But why? It's hard work, by the way. To serve other people, to serve God's people, to serve for the name of Christ. If we seek positions of power or authority or prominence, let us do so to serve others, to serve the body, and to do so to the glory of Christ. When Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, that we should take that to heart. True greatness in the kingdom of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be found in humble service, in humbly serving other people. And whoever wants to be first, he says, must be the slave, the slave of all. That, that phrase probably struck the, the disciples about as strange as the whole thing in the previous text about fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. A slave is the lowest of the lowest of the low on the totem pole. And Jesus says, you want to be truly great? If you want to be number one, if you want to be first and have prominence, be a slave. Serve other people. Put their needs first. Notice you know, the anger of the disciples, the other ten. Notice the gentleness with which Jesus corrects his wayward disciples. Notice his patience in correcting them. William Hendrickson writes this. He says, it should not escape our attention that even though the attitude of those 12 men, all 12, not just the 10 or the 2, must have caused the Lord much sorrow of heart, since it showed that even now, in spite of all his messages, they had not yet put into practice this part of his teaching. He reacts very gently. Is he not the tender shepherd who loves his sheep? So first he calls the 12 to himself, then calmly and earnestly he reproves and admonishes them. You know, what a comfort I hope it is to you as it is to me to be reminded here of our Savior's kind heart towards his people, his patience toward us who are his people. You and I, we fall short. We stumble in many ways and in many things. We also ask amiss in our prayers. It's really what they're doing. They're talking to Jesus. We don't think of it like prayer, but they're asking him for something. How many times have we asked, have you asked for something amiss? And thank God he didn't give it to you. Sometimes God doesn't give us things we ask for because he knows better than what we ourselves do. We ask amiss in our prayers. We seek after comforts. We seek after selfish glory, but he gently corrects us when we do. Psalm 23, it says that his rod and staff, the good shepherd, our, the Lord is our shepherd. His rod and his staff do what? They comfort me. That's an odd picture there. But his rod and his staff comfort us. They protect us and they correct us. They pull us back when we need it. What a comfort to have the Lord Jesus Christ as our, as our shepherd. Well, finally, in this, this text in verse 45, Jesus kind of sums the whole thing up. He kind of ties it up in a ribbon by 
by showing that he himself was the embodiment of everything he just said. So if you, you know, have you guys not been watching me is almost what he seems to be saying. In verse 45, look there again, he says, For even the Son of Man... You know, if you want to know who number one is, that's who's number one. That's who's at the top of the totem pole. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, they want, they want this selfish you know, prominence. They want, they want to be in glory. They want to have people serving them. And it's as if Jesus is saying, have you guys not been watching this whole time as we've gone around? I haven't had people waiting on me. Following me, yes. People weren't waiting on Jesus' hand and foot. He was waiting on them. He hardly had a moment to himself. And think about this. If anyone in the history of humanity, in the history of the world, deserved to be waited on hand and foot, who was it? It was Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory. If anyone on this earth was worthy of awe, reverence, fear, worship, glory, service, power, dominion, all these things, it was Jesus Christ. And yet, even Jesus, the Son of God, came in humility. He came, as he says himself, not to be served, but to serve. The exact opposite of what he, we should have expected. If anybody deserved to be waited on hand and foot and obeyed and honored, it was Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, how can we who follow him and call upon his name and take his name upon ourselves not to serve, not seek to serve other people in humility as he did. Who is the standard for your greatness? When you think of what's the standard, who's the standard, is it not Jesus Christ? Is it not the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners? Is he himself not your standard for greatness? And if he is, we should follow accordingly. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It's a little bit of a long of a long text, but read, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. He says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, basically, if you know the Lord at all, you know his, his peace, his, he says, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind is that? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. Sufferings, his sufferings came first. His glory came later. People didn't often bow the knee to Christ on this earth. And sometimes those who did were fake about it. The rich young ruler came and knelt down at his feet. Remember, he's a good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he went away sad because he had many possessions. He didn't really want to follow 
the Lord. His stuff was more important. One day, what does Paul say? Every knee is going to bow. One day, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is what? He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let us, as Paul says there, let us have, seek to have the mind of Christ our Savior in humbly serving others as he himself did. If Jesus served others, what right do we have to think ourselves above such a thing? And that brings us to the third and final thing the disciples, the disciples needed to understand about the way to greatness and glory in the kingdom of, of our Lord Jesus Christ is that it involves not just suffering and service, but it also involves sacrifice. It involves sacrifice. It involves not our sacrifice per se, but that of Christ himself, the Son of Man dying to redeem lost sinners. Verse 45, Jesus says again, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and in the last phrase, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I could preach a whole different sermon on that, but I, I'll keep it short. Notice that Jesus teaches again. He teaches explicitly here what we call substitutionary atonement in this one short verse. What does that mean? What, is, what, do, I, what do I mean by substitutionary atonement? Christ's death on the cross first was, he calls it, a ransom. A ransom. It was a price paid for the redemption and freeing of sinners. His death frees his people from your debt of sin, frees us from death and hell itself. His death was the payment. What was the payment for? For the infinite debt of sin that is ours because of our sin in Adam. We owe an infinite debt of sin to a holy God for our rebellion against our Creator. That's what Christ paid on the cross. His, his death on the cross wasn't just showing how much God loved us, although it did include that. It was paying our debt when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, many say, what does it mean? Paid in full. It's done. No more wrath for us to fear if you're in Christ. He has taken every last bit of it. Not only that, but he says, it says here, Jesus says his death was a what? A ransom for many. Not just a ransom, but a ransom for. Now the word for there comes from a word... Uh, we, we use it as the word anti, which, so it means kind of something else there. But the word anti there means in the place of. So he died as a ransom in the place of many. What does that mean? It's what Isaiah 53, we're going to see that in a few weeks in our scripture reading. You want to see substitutionary atonement, read Isaiah 53. The death that we deserve for our sin, who took it upon himself? Christ. The Lord, God the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, he, the sufferings that we deserve, he took upon himself. The death that you and I deserve for our sin, he took upon himself on the cross. The death that we should have died, Jesus died it in our place. He took the wrath of a holy God upon himself, the one who deserved none of it. We, we deserved it, but he took that for us. The last thing it says, that Jesus' death was a, he calls it a ransom for Many, a ransom for many. He did not die for the sins of only a select few people. I hope that's obvious. He did not die for a small number of people. Revelation 7.9 says that the company of the redeemed will be, quote, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Jesus being a ransom for many also means he did not die for every person under heaven. 
He did not die for everyone. He did not. He died for his elect. He died for his people and died in their place. There will be no one missing in heaven on that last day for whom Christ died. And that's because Jesus did not die to make salvation possible, to make it hypothetical. He died to save sinners. His death accomplished the salvation of sinners. That is what Jesus himself says here. And so this morning I ask, do you, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you really know Jesus Christ by faith? Have you, have you turned from your sin and turned to him to have life and forgiveness and all these things that are promised only in him? If you have not, come, come to him, turn to him by faith and live. Come to him and be freed from the crushing weight of your debt of sin, your infinite debt of sin. Be freed by him, by Christ alone, from the misery of your slavery to sin. He's the only one that can do that. Come and serve Christ, he says in Matthew 11. His yoke is easy and his burden is what? Light. He's not the hard taskmaster. Sin is. Satan is. Serving Christ is a joy. It's not. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. You who know Christ, and maybe have known him for decades and years and years and years. You know the freedom that you have in Christ from sin and the evil one. You know the forgiveness, the joy of eternal life and forgiveness that are to be found in Christ alone. How much ought we to love Christ? How ought we to glorify and enjoy Christ? How fitting and pleasant it is that we should sing and speak his praises. When we sing to him and of him on Sunday mornings or at your, on, in your car by yourself, how much ought we to be? able to sing and speak his praises. How ought we to walk in newness of life and holiness in obeying Christ's commandments? As the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, using the same word that Jesus uses here in verse 45, a ransom. He said that you were ransomed from your old ways of futility, quote, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The ransom that Christ paid for our, for our freedom, for our redemption in him should lead us to walk in holiness and newness of life. We should think often on the precious blood of Christ that was our ransom price from our sins. And we should remember from our text that truly great people, truly prominent people, important people, the ones that are really that way in this world are those who follow Jesus Christ, being willing to suffer for his namesake, and seeking to do all they can to serve others unto the glory of Christ's name and not their own. For Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory himself, of all the people in this world, came to suffer and serve and sacrifice himself as our ransom that we might share in his glory in heaven with him forever. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you sent your son because you loved us when we are unlovable, that you sent him to give his life as a ransom for us, that he died in our place and took your wrath for our sins from us upon him, that we might be forgiven, that we might know all the blessings that we have in Christ of being justified in your sight, accepted by you by a holy God as being righteous in your sight when we are anything but that that you adopt us as your family, as your sons in your son, that you sanctify us, that you, you even give us your Holy Spirit and work upon us and in us the rest of our days 
in this world to make us more and more like Christ, to help us to walk in newness of life. We thank you for bringing us to life from the dead, those of us who know you. All these things we only have because you sent your Son, and he willingly laid down his life for us. And we do pray this morning, as we always do, if there's anybody here this morning who is laboring under the weight of sin and the slavery to sin that you might make today the day of their salvation. Open their eyes. Give them grace to turn to your son by faith that they might have life eternal and abundant, that we might rejoice with the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents and comes to you. And we ask all this for the glory of the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.